a lot of organizations, they don't use data in insights effectively and they end up wasting a lot of time and money and energy on running initiatives and diversity and inclusion activities that, you know, that don't actually make an impact. My name is Charlotte and I'm the CEO of Equalture, a company that is on a mission to shape the world of unbiased hiring. Welcome to the Oops, I'm Biased podcast. So uh, my guest for today's episode is Toby Milden. And Toby is a DEI consultant based in the UK. Has worked within the DEI sector for a long time. Uh, he was a DEI manager at Deloitte, at BBC, uh, and now started his own consultancy firm. And he actually advises companies on how to achieve inclusive growth. Uh, so in this episode, Toby is going to explain what inclusive growth means. And something else that we will cover in today's episode is how can you treat a DEI strategy as if it were any other strategy, like your marketing strategy, like your sales strategy, to incorporate it actually into your strategic business goals? Because that's eventually where the magic happens. So I hope you will enjoy today's episode. Uh, welcome, Toby. It's great to uh, to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, it's great. Thank, thanks for inviting me along, Charlotte. I'm so jealous that you, um, I already mentioned it, of course, before we uh, hit the record button, but that you actually wrote a book. It's been on my bucket list for a long time about inclusive growth. I would like to ask you a little bit more on that. But before we uh, dive into the topic right away, would you be able to, for everyone who's listening today, to give a quick introduction of who you are and, um, and what you do on a daily basis? Yeah, so I'm a diversity and inclusion consultant and uh, I work with heads of people and chief executive officers and we spend most of our time helping businesses develop their diversity and inclusion strategies um, and our clients develop strategies because they want to be an attractive place to work. They want to create the, the, the kind of culture where people want to come and work for them and they want to stick around as well and they're not thinking of leaving. So um, we, we do that with our clients. Uh, and then the rest of our time, we do bespoke projects. So we are working with a, a huge energy company at the moment, uh, developing an inclusive leadership training for their top 100 managers that report into the chief executive. Um, and we also run... Uh, lunch and learns and webinars and things like that, just as a, a as a catalyst for change within organizations to to get the conversation going about diversity and inclusion. Do you think that that's the ultimate goal of, uh, because you mentioned like we, we, you want to support your customers also in creating an environment where people want to stay and don't think about leaving. Do you think that that's the, the ideal outcome of a DNI strategy? Yeah. I mean, our clients, uh, they think about the, the whole employee life cycle and how that whole employee life cycle can be improved from a, an inclusive perspective. I mean, the ultimate outcome really is diversity, that the organization is more diverse and actually does a better job at reflecting the diversity of the customers or the clients that they might serve or the communities in which their businesses are based in. Mm -hmm. um, some of our clients, for example, um, they operate in very diverse cities like London or Manchester or Birmingham in the UK, but their business doesn't look like the city. So the question is, why do we see that gap? And so mm -hmm. we work with our clients to try and close that gap. 
Um, but as I mentioned, it's the whole employee life cycle. So it's looking at how we can do a better job at attracting people in the first place and getting them through recruitment, how we can then have inclusive talent management and make sure that we retain and develop people once they're they're working in the business. Yeah. Hey, because you have been um, a DNI manager, of course. I, I looked up your LinkedIn profile, so you did it at Deloitte, also at BBC. I think quite big companies, at least well known for their for their DNI strategies or at least their efforts to improve DNI within their organization. What do you think is more? Um, I always make that split between everything that happens before you make a hiring decision and basically everything that happens after you did. If it comes to a DNI strategy, which part of the employee life cycle do you think is more difficult for a company? I think it's the latter, if I'm honest. Uh, a lot of organizations, they they tend to default to or they gravitate towards what goes on in recruitment and getting and trying to get more diversity through that that talent attraction, that recruitment and onboarding side of things and they find it harder on the on the other on the opposite side which is really around retaining and developing your people and i think that clients really should sort of start with that actually because the problem is that you you might be a, you might do a very good job at recruiting diversity but then um those people might want to leave shortly after joining because they're actually joining an organization where the culture, where they feel like they don't fit into the culture very well. No. Um, so they end up leaving. Yeah, yeah, I fully agree. I think that a lot of companies think that if you hire more diverse, that inclusion is some sort of a natural consequence. But that's, of course, uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's, that's not how it works in the in the, the real world. And so fully agree. Hey, you, um, I mentioned, of course, at the start, you wrote a book, um, yeah. Inclusive Growth. How would you, um, what is your definition of inclusive growth? Because I've heard this term before, but I would assume that you've given it your own definition because your book is, is has that title. So in your understanding, what does inclusive growth mean and why is it so important for an organization? Yeah, you're right. I mean, inclusive growth is a term that's that's used in in the economic circles. Um, mm -hmm. So when, whenever you, whenever you write a book, um, the first thing really you think about is is what is the big question that you're trying to answer for the le uh, for for the reader, the person reading your book, and that's where I started. And what got me thinking was it was born out of a frustration first of all, that diversity and inclusion was very often treated as a, as a box ticking exercise or something that you do as a marketing activity to raise the profile of the organization, but without real sustainable change uh, for your people. And I wanted to reframe diversity and inclusion for, for chief execs and heads of people. And I wanted to link it to business strategy and link it to a business being able to grow and prosper. And so I that's where I started. And really what I'm trying to answer in the book is, what are the seven things that organizations really need to get, uh, get their head around uh, and do well to, to achieve that, that inclusive growth? 
And could you give an example of one of those seven things that you mentioned in the book? Yeah, so we actually start with uh, clarity. So each of the seven areas begins with the letter C. <laughs> um, so the first one is clarity. And what, what I talk about in that chapter is the need to get your hands on data and employee insights so that you can understand what the lived experience of your staff is, uh, what challenges or issues they're facing, um, and how you can use that data and insights to develop a really strong strategy. Um, because a lot of organizations, they don't use data and insights effectively, and they end up wasting a lot of time and money and energy on running initiatives um, and diversity and inclusion activities that you know that don't actually make an impact, mm -hmm. uh, which leads people feeling really frustrated. And it, it just doesn't shift the dial on diversity. So in clarity, that's what we talk about, that data. But we also talk about the need to get the chief executive and the senior leadership team all on the same page and understand the why, the, the reason why diversity and inclusion is important to the, the growth of the business. Um, and uh, starting to think about how uh, the important role that culture plays as well. Yeah. I'm definitely going to buy the book after, oh, <laughs> after this episode. I'm going to do it right away. <laughs> hey, there I are two that. topics. Uh, yeah, but I think it's uh, based on what you've just said. It's a book that I think every leader should read because I think that still a lot of people, a lot of leaders, unfortunately think that, well, you would have hoped that we would be living in a world in which D&I would come from intrinsic motivation. Reality, unfortunately, is that it doesn't for at least some, but I think that still a lot of companies decide to implement a DNI strategy because they feel that they have to in order to attract candidates or whatever, um, or just some sort of ticking the box exercise. But I think it's still a lot of leaders don't understand that having a DNI strategy in place is eventually some sort of a that kickstart for your for your overarching company strategy. And I think your book tries to explain that. So it's uh, a yep. Well, I'm definitely yeah. going to buy it for our leadership team then. <laughs> definitely. And I've been, on, I've been on this journey with one of my clients. And I think this is a good example of how, of how companies do it well. So I'm, I've been working with a manufacturing business and they've been following our, the, the process with us. And the first thing that we did was I spent half a day with the managing director and the board uh, on that clarity piece that I mentioned, you know, getting really clear on the why. And then um, off, of his, off of his own back, actually, the managing director then wrote a vision statement for diversity and inclusion and shared it widely on LinkedIn. And that went down really well with his staff, actually, because he was making, he was sticking a, a stick in the sand to say, this is our position on diversity and inclusion. And this is why it's important to us as a business. And this is the kind of behavior that I expect or that I don't expect to create that that culture. Mm -hmm. And then we did a survey with the staff to find out what was going on for them and then use that data to create a strategy. Um, I think what was really impressive with this particular organization was that he, I sat down with the managing director and he said, I just don't understand why I need to have a separate diversity and inclusion strategy. I want to just incorporate it into my business strategy or the people plan that we've already got. 
And the people plan is going to sit alongside our business development plan and our marketing plan and every other plan he had in the business. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Like that is exactly how it should be done. Um, it should just be incorporated into your business strategy. Yeah. Uh, it shouldn't be something that you do as some sort of a, an extra thing. Yeah, I fully agree. Hey, the two things that I wanted to um, to also touch upon in this episode, because we uh, I want to say I did some homework, but I have to say that my lovely colleague Kat also did a lot of homework into uh, into what you've uh, what you've done so far in your career. And so the two things I wanted to talk about, because I think that a lot of companies also have most difficulties with that, is a how to make sure that more diverse uh, talent actually comes in. And I know with BBC you spend a lot of time and effort on gender balance. So that's the first one. And then the second one, and then we will start with the first one, is uh, internal mobility and how diversity is linked to internal mobility. Because I think that uh, usually if we, um, it's, it's, we always say that here internally, like when we speak about equal opportunities, usually we refer to the recruitment process in companies. Whereas I think that internal mobility promotions whatever might be even more unfair than what happens before you get hired but maybe to start with the 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 recruitment part uh so uh, you have been a dni manager at bbc for quite some time and you put a lot of effort into creating more gender balance in the team yeah how did you do that because if i if i read okay we want to create more gender balance in the team then my initial thought would immediately be okay this is quota based hiring or this is putting more females on the shortlist than males well there's there are people who are fully supportive of that let's call it positive discrimination some are really aren't so mm. what was your strategy to create more gender balance in that company yeah so this is a a really great example of of how we we really needed to start with data. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll just set the scene so that the person listening to us kind of knows the the background to this. Um, so at the BBC, I, I started by working in the technology department. So we had a particular challenge around gender because we employed software engineers and testers and 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 people like that. And we, I mean, we were in the same boat as Google, Facebook, and Amazon. You know, it's the, the the technology and engineering industry has this gender imbalance. There's more more men working in the sector than than women. Um, the rest of the BBC had a 50-50 gender split. So we, you know, our department was uh, at the time we started off at fourteen percent. So that's where we had that gender imbalance. But the data was really important because the data that we could get through our HR information systems and our recruitment software was telling us that if a woman got to interview stage, that they were just as likely to get offered a job as a a guy. So Mm -hmm. we, I think we felt confident that there wasn't stuff going on in the interview room that would put women at a disadvantage. Like there didn't seem to be any you know, unconscious bias, for example, or it, unconscious bias in the interview room itself wasn't necessarily an issue. So when we went back through, when we kind of went back through the recruitment process, we were just not doing a very good job at attracting people in the first place. 
So that meant that with this data, we knew that that's where we had to start. That's where that's where we were probably going to get most value for our money mm-hmm. by focusing on that talent attraction piece. So we were doing activities around that. So um, we uh, we tasked our recruiters to cast their net wider and try and be a bit more intentional and proactive about contacting women on LinkedIn, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, going out to networking events, uh, you know, software engineering events, and just go talent scouting um, and potentially poaching people <laughs> from mm-hmm. other businesses like Google and Facebook. Um, um, and the other thing that we did, we, we ran conferences, uh, women in technology conferences, and we worked with um, women and technology influencers on social media to uh, to fill up these conferences. And then we use these conferences as a way of, um, of funneling people into our recruitment process. So it was a bit of a multi-pronged approach, but the we were focusing on that, that early piece of talent attraction. Yeah. Uh, and what you, or at least what I see happening a lot in organizations, I think gender is a very a good example because it's also very tangible and it's it's relatively easy to measure. In most countries, you're allowed at least to uh, capture the gender of your employees. But what you see a lot, for example, here in the Netherlands, is that at some point the company introduces a quota, thirty uh, percent females in engineering teams or leadership teams, or whatever. Uh, but they have no clue, indeed, why they have that problem in the first place. Uh, so then, some of them just say oh, we're going to hire an executive search agency and we only let them introduce females, for example, to us. Uh, and then we simply have to hire them. But maybe for some of them, the, prob- the, the, the issue actually arises from the interview stage. You see that a lot, right? That females, for example, don't feel very comfortable in interviews if you are surrounded by a group of, uh, a group of males doing the interview. So I think what you mentioned there is super accurate like if you don't have the data to see where in the funnel your problem is arising then there's yeah, you can have quotas or whatever but it's it's not going to fix the issue for you exactly and we use data to monitor what we were doing as well so we had quite good governance structure yeah. set around our projects and every month i would go to um there was like a, a steering committee and i would i would go to that steering committee with uh, a pack of data Um, and we use that data to see what our trends were. And so if we took recruitment, for example, um, we would monitor how many applications we received and the gender split, how many people made it through the different rounds of the recruitment process through to job offer and onboarding. So that was, that was measured on a monthly basis. And then every month we could see the trend, whether we were going up or down. Uh, and if we was if we were going down or we were flatlining, then we had to ask ourselves some questions about uh, why that might be happening or, or how we tried to reverse the trend. Now, and I think it's super smart because if you if you approach it from well, here at Equals, for example, we in some departments we work with OKR, so maybe to stay within that metaphor, I think a lot of D and I teams have. Like with OKRs, of course, you have objective key results and initiatives to yeah. get to those results. And I think that what I see a lot with DNI teams is that they have a lot of initiatives, but they don't necessarily 
know what kind of KPIs or overarching goal to link it to. And then it's also yeah. pretty difficult to make the business case, let's say, for that team. Yeah. I've got a funny story about OKRs. Well, maybe it's my warped sense of humor. It's probably not that funny. <laughs> but uh, so I was I was working with the chief exec of a, a fintech and um in our session she said to me, okay, so the, the the biggest question that I've got in my mind is how I measure and monitor diversity and inclusion. And I said to her, okay, so how do you measure and monitor other things in your business, like shipping your product or your financials? And she was like, oh, well, we, we just use the OKR system. And I was like, well, why don't you just use OKR for diversity and inclusion? And she was like, can I do that? And I was like, well, why not? <laughs> and she was like, yeah, I suppose we could, couldn't we? And I was like, yeah. And the great thing about that is that diversity and inclusion is just going to be blended into the rest of your OKRs. You know, you'll you'll have every you'll you'll be able to monitor and measure everything in the same way as everything else in your business. Exactly. Because that's what we do as well, is we have some sort of OKRs on a team level and then we link it back to an organizational level. So is if one of those sub OKRs is linked to DNI, then it's naturally part of your overarching company strategy. Yeah, absolutely. You gave me a good idea as well now, just uh, (laughs) in this episode, thanks. Um, Hey, the other thing that I wanted to talk about is internal mobility, because you you advise, of course, on the entire life cycle. So internal mobility is part of that. It is. What is your view on how how companies, the most most companies that you work with are doing when it comes to internal mobility and DE&I? Yeah, I think um, companies have to be really intentional about how inclusive their internal mobility strategies or their talent management strategies are. Um, and again, try and get some data to to back this up. So being able to monitor and measure things like career velocity, um, whether people are kind of getting stuck at certain grades of the organization, whether whether there's kind of these glass ceilings appearing in the organization um, and that kind of thing. And I think we have to start with that data if you can get it. And then again, think about which strategies uh, you can do to, to break to break that pattern. Um, so for example, um, uh, when I was working at the BBC, we we looked through the data. We found we, we, we found two things for disabled staff. And obviously it, this is a podcast, so people can't see us, but I'm I'm a wheelchair user and I, I, I have been since birth. So I've got I've got lived experience of of having a disability um, as well as my you know professional experience of in this space. But at the BBC, um, our data was telling us that um, in our performance management system, we use the, the nine box grid. Um, yeah. and it, it's some people like it some people hate it um mm-hmm. but what we what we noticed is that there were no there were no disabled staff sitting in the high performance high potential part of the the grid so that was like well why is that you know what is preventing staff from disabled staff from being high performers or having high potential um and then the second thing is that we noticed that there were very few disabled staff above grade eight 
and grade mm-hmm. eight for us was the kind of the level um, just before you become uh, like a team leader, essentially. So the data was telling us those two things, uh, lack of high potential, high performance and inability to get beyond grade eight or struggling to. Um, so that enabled us to then create uh, a program to try and help those staff. So we created a program that targeted grade seven people and then gave them the coaching, the mentoring and the resources to be able to advance their career beyond grade seven. So that's a good example of how you need to use data to take targeted action where it's most needed. If we didn't have that data, then we would have run the risk of probably designing a program that just would not have made it's the desired impact. Yeah, that would facilitate going up in the organization for only a small amount of people. Yeah. Are you allowed to, I don't know if you're allowed to share that, but what did you find out what the reason was eventually why disabled people didn't end up in the high performer, high potential part of the grid? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of reasons that the most common reason, but, and this is not just this is not just for the BBC; it's for other clients that I work with. Um, that one of the most common reasons is disabled staff not getting the adjustments that they need to perform well in their job, uh, either not getting them at all or not getting them in a timely manner, and very often the workplace adjustments process in an organization is broken and inefficient. Um, And that leaves disabled staff without the resources and the tools to be able to do their jobs. No, it's, it's, it's just facilitating the, 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 the basics actually even, but it's, I think my absolute main takeaway from today's uh, podcast with you and I know that it sounds like a bit a bit of an open door to many people. Like it starts with measuring before you can do so. But the kind of examples that you just gave throughout this episode may even made me realize. Like I thought that we did that we did ourselves a lot with data in this organization. But there are so many things with regards to DNI that we actually don't cover with the analysis that we are doing. Yeah. The one last question that I have for you, the one concern that a lot of people, of course, have around data is that, okay, so measuring drop-off in an applicant tracking system is, uh, well, for most systems, quite easy. Uh, measure, uh, comparing performance is usually in your HR system. So I think it's not necessarily about the metrics that you want to look at, but you have to feed the metrics, of course, with diversity stats. That's usually a bit of a political issue in organizations, and it's also illegal in some countries. So, yeah, what would be your advice to uh, people that are listening to this podcast who think, "Hey, I do want to make my DNI strategy more data driven, but I also want to make sure that I don't store data that I'm maybe not even allowed to store." Yeah. So, first of all, um, obviously, as you've touched on, there's, there's different rules around the world about what data you can collect and what you can't and what you can and can't do with it. So first of all, just um, make sure that you make friends with your um, uh, employment lawyer or your data protection person to understand what what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. 
Um, my second piece of advice is challenge them, though, because my experience has been that a lot of um, uh, legal advisors or um, data protection people, they're very cautious um, and they kind of advise against doing stuff that technically you can do just because they're, they're being conservative and they're being cautious. Um, so that's kind of my second bit of advice because uh, the goal here is to try and collect as much data as feasibly possible to help you make the best decisions for your for your people. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it, it also comes down to explaining to people why they're leaving their why they're sharing these details in the first place. Uh, I think it, it's a lot of organizations are not that transparent about what they do with the data that they collect for you. And I think having a bit more clarity around that is already a very good first step. Yeah, this is something I teach my clients, actually. I, the data collection process is, is broken down into four stages. So the first stage is your, your preparation. And I say to my clients, actually spend more much more time on this first stage than you do on the data collection side of things because you have to have really good internal communications explaining to people why you're collecting data um what you're going to do with it what you're not going to do with it and build up confidence so that people are more, much more willing to share that information with you because if you don't have that psychological safety in the organization if you don't have that trust with people they're not going to share their data because they're going to be worried about who's going to see it, um, what's going to be done with it. You know, is their manager going to see this data or not? Um, and and might it be used against them? So these are some of the things that you have to address in, in at, you know, right at the beginning, before before you open up data collection. Yeah, no, I fully agree. What I really love about your approach when it comes to DNI, I I really want to read your book. Is that you? I think the pitfall with DNI strategies for a lot of people is that it's not tangible, or it's it's it feels like where do I have to start in order to make a change? And yeah, you apply a lot of models and stages and etc. To I think your approach of how you are helping companies, which makes it super practical practical and actionable how you should at least start with it so i think that's um it's a really good angle you chose there do you is that the feedback that you usually also get from the people you work with it is actually um i think people what one of the one of the difficulties that i come across is like i meet chief executives right who look at diversity and inclusion in one of two ways they either connect on an emotional level like they just get it or they've got a personal experience of of it maybe their son or daughter has just come out as as gay for example and they're they're thinking about sexuality within the workplace and and what the future um workplace is going to be like for for their son or daughter for instance um and or they just believe it's the right thing to do you know i also meet a lot of people who just they think about it in a very kind of logical and rational way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talk about, well, what's the business case for doing diversity and inclusion, which kind of winds me up slightly because I'm just like, tell me the business case for not doing it rather than, you know, for doing it. Um, yeah. And then they'll say, well, you know, I get it. Like, I get it. I get it intellectually. I've read the McKinsey reports. 
you know. And I understand that yeah, X percent representation on the board will mean an increase in business profitability or performance or that kind of thing. They get it. But then they often say, but it just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't fit my business, my organization, which is why I wrote The Inclusive Growth, because that's where we start. I'm like, how do you want to grow as a business? And then how is greater diversity or representation or an inclusive culture going to help you with that growth? And I've worked with loads of businesses across lots of different industries. And I have not yet found an organization that doesn't want to grow. Whether you're a police force or you're a retailer or a hospitality business or you're a healthcare organization or running a hospital, every organization wants to grow in some way or another. And then we can link diversity and inclusion to that growth. Yeah. So despite the fact that it upsets you a little bit that we do need a business case, your book is actually centered around that business case. It is, yeah. It will help you formulate that business case. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's the hard reality that, I mean, it's it's like I said before, you would hope that we were, would be living in an era where people would do that out of intrinsic motivation. But for most bo- boardrooms, I think it's, if they are considering the and the implementing a DNI strategy, because there are of course lots of organizations that don't even have it, then usually it's more centered still around a business case rather than I feel this is the right thing to do. Yes. Uh, however, my personal opinion about that is always that uh, I mean, what we do as a business is also because we want to ensure equal opportunities, and we also work with companies every now and then of which I know for sure they would never tell that to us, but that it's it doesn't come from an intrinsic motivation, but just I want to make better hiring decisions. I want to tap into a wider talent pool. So I just have to do it. Uh, but still, I do see once the business case starts to click, usually I also see that the intrinsic motivations slowly starts to come because people just mm. get it and they get it in the context of their business so yeah yes it's always better of course to start with intrinsic motivation but i think in some cases you can start from an extrinsic motivation point of view and then slowly move towards the intrinsic motivation part yeah yeah that's where i like to get my clients to as well yeah Hey, I'd like to thank you so much, um, Toby, for being here today. I learned a lot. I think we should also apply a little bit more data to what we are doing here internally. So thanks so much for um, for sharing your insights. I hope you uh, enjoyed it as well, of course. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's been, been great to catch up with you. Cool. And we might we might do a follow-up, actually, because I think we didn't touch upon a lot of topics that we, uh, that we could still touch upon. Yeah. Um, for everyone who's listening to today's episode, if you have any follow-up questions for Toby, I think, Toby, you're pretty active on LinkedIn. Yeah, it's um, probably the best place to start. Just connect with me on LinkedIn, send me a message. Exactly. Um, and thanks so much for listening. And I hope to see you back on our next episode. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me along. <laughs>